Hello and welcome to The End of the World for Beginners, the first episode of a podcast series, OK Doomer, which will outline the biggest risks to humanity and the planet, from nuclear war and climate change to AI and engineered pandemics. And we promise with optimism and laughs some of the time. I'm Jane Kinnanmont, Policy and Impact Director at the European Leadership Network, or ELN for short. We are a network that brings people together across nationalities and sectors and generations to craft ideas and work with governments in order to reduce the risks of existential conflict and, above all, nuclear war. I'm also short, Scottish and an occasional poet. I'm Eden Simpson, Project Coordinator for the ELN's New European Voices on Existential Risk Network, or NEVER for short which brings together a mind-bogglingly brilliant set of experts, thinkers and doers from 16 countries, mostly under 30, and together we want to figure out how to fix these problems. I'm also tall, from Sheffield in the north of England, and I'm weirdly into Byzantine history. Over our six episodes, we'll dive into the four key areas of existential risk, and we'll bring you innovative ideas from whether it's a good idea to re-engineer the atmosphere to modify the sun's radiation, to what we might be able to eat during a nuclear winter. In each episode, we will introduce the issue with what's the problem, setting out a key problem that threatens to wreck the future of humanity and the planet. Today, that's an introduction to existential risks in general, nukes, climate, AI and biological threats. Then we'll bring in a brilliant panel of experts for an intergenerational dialogue on how to address these problems. And then we'll turn back the clock to a lesson we can draw from history, from a time when humanity came close to extinction, but eventually turned out okay. And finally, we'll wrap up with a quick debrief where we recap on what we've heard and try to make sense of it all. Ready? Okay, Doomer, let's go. Okay, Jane, what's the problem? Well, over the past century, humans have managed to elevate technology beyond levels ever thought possible, even to the point where our own inventions have the power to destroy us. That doesn't necessarily mean our fate will be determined by technology, but it does mean that we need to harness those same powers of invention to safeguard humanity and the planet. Is that something new? Hasn't Earth always faced the risk of a massive shock, like whatever wiped out the dinosaurs? Arguably, the Earth has always faced existential risks from the changing climate or from space. But in our series, we will talk specifically about man-made existential threats. In the last century, with nuclear weapons, a new era began. Humanity got the tools, or made the tools, to destroy itself through a combination of the direct effects of the world's most toxic weapons and the likely effects they would have on the global climate through nuclear winter. Essentially, The security of the entire world relies on the idea that the leaders of nuclear states will not start a nuclear war because all of them, all of us, would lose everything. That has worked so far. How much we can rely on it in the future? Well, that's a matter of some debate. But while it was nuclear war that haunted the imaginations of the Cold War era, in recent decades there has been a growing scientific consensus that man-made climate change also represents the second major existential threat to humanity and the planet. And then, the recent experience of COVID-19 has shone a light on what might be possible as a result of biological threats, whether that's future pandemics or possibly weaponized pathogens. 
And fourthly, there's a growing community of existential risk analysts, innovators and philanthropists who are particularly focused on what might happen if technology goes wrong, especially the idea of malign AI. These issues are all too often addressed by totally different policy and intellectual communities. And people dealing with these huge common challenges, rather ironically, end up competing for government and media attention. But in reality, both the challenges and the remedies are interconnected in two ways. Go on then, give us some examples. Well, one is that they affect each other. For instance, we know that climate change and biodiversity loss can have effects on the risks of future pandemics and the availability of medicines to treat them. Or, as another example, there are risks that advanced military technologies could potentially interfere with or confuse nuclear decision-making. The effects of nuclear winter may depend on what kind of global food security we've established, and other pressing issues like disinformation could exacerbate the problems you can just imagine in emergencies if people don't believe the basic information from the government. The second way that these issues are interconnected is that they have some common features, which can have cross-cutting lessons for how to fix them. One, all of these issues cross borders. Two, they require long-term and preventative action, and all too often that conflicts with the imperatives that come to bear on governments who typically want short-term successes that are measurable and can be clearly demonstrated on the doorstep. Three, government decisions are going to be absolutely critical to addressing these issues, but none of them can be solved by any one government precisely because they are long-term and cross-border. That in itself is surely an argument for cooperation. But we get collective action problems. When no one can solve it, no one thinks it's their problem to solve. One leader's good decision can easily be undermined by others making bad ones, or, as we see with climate change a lot of the time, governments say, those countries haven't done enough, why should we do more? And, This collective action problem is getting worse now that we're in this political context of geopolitical divisions and great power competition, which threatens to multiply these risks. Thanks, Jane. That's really interesting. Now, to help us get our heads around this intersection between great power competition and existential risk, let's bring in Sir Adam Thompson, director of the European Leadership Network and a former career diplomat. He's going to outline for us why this political context matters. I would argue that great power competition is almost certainly the single greatest driver of the existential risks that mankind now faces. If you think about it, there are only nine nuclear weapon states, and really only two of them, Russia and the United States, have the capability to destroy civilization because of the size of their arsenals. Perhaps at the moment, only two countries have the AI powers that might lead to rogue AI. That's China and the United States. And it's not a very much larger handful of countries that are responsible for the serious bio capabilities that could be engineered to wipe out human beings. There are 24 countries with category four bio labs, but it's only a handful of them that have the really high end capabilities. Throw in climate where Just four major powers are responsible for over 55% of global carbon emissions. I think in descending order, China, the United States, Russia, and India, which are incidentally also nuclear weapon states. And you can see how 
at the moment, at this point in history, existential risk is intimately connected to great power dynamics. The great powers are all racing to beat each other to these capabilities. And regrettably, not one of them is thinking about how they are going to live with each other, not just you know for the 2020s, but if you think about it, for absolutely all generations to come, because the knowledge of these technologies is impossible to get rid of. And if we don't do it now, my last point, it's going to be infinitely harder in future because these capabilities, AI or bioengineering, or God forbid, even nuclear, are going to proliferate, and not just to countries, but to non-state actors as well. So if you want to get a grip on existential risk, get a grip on global great power competition, and do it now. Thanks, Adam. This is going to be a recurring theme throughout our series, and we'll be bringing in voices from all across Europe, the US, Russia, China, Latin America and other parts of the world to assess and address it. Other recurring themes are going to include the importance of communications between countries, especially when their relations are tense, and the systematic problems that governments have in dealing with the long term. We can see that one reason climate change has gone up the political agenda is because it started to become not just scientific theory, but something tangible as we see the impacts of drought on conflicts everywhere from Syria to the Sahel and extreme weather events seeming to rise. And there's been growing awareness and pressure from social movements who have helped to make sure that this does come on the political agenda. More recently, nukes have risen up the agenda for all the wrong reasons because it's usually when bad things start to happen that political attention is finally paid. And we saw the same thing with the COVID pandemic After many warnings of such a pandemic, governments found themselves unprepared. So we know that there's a huge, urgent need to prevent and mitigate these risks. But the challenge is how to actually keep leaders engaged and accountable when politics feels so polarised. The world needs to look at ways to institutionalise the incentives for effective leadership. So, for instance, with COP, you have a system of multilateral summits where world leaders have to show up every year. And maybe they're not doing enough, but there is a system where they have to report on doing something and they will be called out when they don't do enough. It helps to motivate them to act, to make sure they've got something to show the world when they're in the spotlight. Meanwhile, regulations, standards and metrics are all important to incentivise the private sector and make sure that money flows into technologies that are going to mitigate the risk. And we see an interesting trend of legislative frameworks trying to tackle how to represent future generations in today's policy makings, something that's been developed, for instance, in Wales and something that's under a lot of consideration at the UN. But meanwhile, all of this is more of a struggle because of the context that we've got of political polarisation and great power competition. So we're bringing together young experts from a diverse range of countries to join the dots and come up with a cross-cutting lessons and solutions whilst looking at existential risk as a whole. I've got to add that another related and even more challenging ethical question is how we balance these big long-term existential risks with the other pressing issues that are facing us that might not wipe out humanity but would put us into a world that no one really wants to be in. How do we weigh up the desire not to have a nuclear war, 
with the imperative not to live in a world of permanent nuclear blackmail. And that comes into sharp focus with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This has come up in controversies over whether it's a good idea to have nuclear diplomacy with Iran at a time over the past year when protesters inside Iran are calling for democracy and regime change. There are also critiques of the long-termist thinking for being too dominated by Anglo-American voices, driven by tech priorities, or indeed billionaires' priorities, and not being diverse enough. After all, maybe you have to be relatively privileged even to have time to worry about the fate of the planet. Maybe the apocalyptic nature of existential risks is also something that reflects deep psychological narratives rooted in Christian cultures. So we think these areas can benefit from applying more diverse perspectives and people from multiple disciplines, philosophers, ethicists, international relations experts, disaster resilience, scenario planning, and engineering specialists. We're going to hear more from the experts coming up on our panel, and we'd love to hear what you think. Please reach out on our socials, that's at the ELN on Twitter or X, European Leadership Network on Facebook, and European Leadership Network on LinkedIn. And now, over to Edan's panel discussion on how to fix it. Hello all, and welcome to our first ever How to Fix It panel. In this section of the episode, we want to bring in expert voices from within Never and beyond to discuss the big themes and subtopics running through the field of existential risk. Today, we want to address the basics of existential risk, determine how we qualify risks to determine whether or not they're existential, and what can be done by individuals, organisations and governments to mitigate global catastrophic threats. On today's panel, I'm joined by Never member Eva Siegman. Eva is currently pursuing a master's degree in security studies focusing on technology and security at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Eva is primarily interested in mitigating existential risks associated with advanced technologies, including nuclear weapons, synthetic biology and artificial intelligence. Welcome, Eva. Hi, Eden. Thanks for having me. I'm also joined by another NEVA member, Arthur DeForest. He currently works with the Interparliamentary Union as a consultant for disarmament and human security matters. His primary focus is on the application of human security approaches to global challenges, and he's particularly interested in the field of disruptive technologies. Lovely having you with us today, Arthur. Hey, Eden. Thank you for having me. Really happy to be here. And our third and final guest is ELN Chair and co-founder Lord Des Brown of Ladyton. Des was the Member of Parliament for Kilmarnock and Luden from 97 till 2010. During his time as an MP, he worked in a number of roles, most notably as Secretary of State for Defence and for Scotland under former UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown. No relation. He has extensive experience in how government works and thinks. And after leaving the House of Commons, Des didn't leave politics. He was created a life peer in 2010. And from October 2009 till March 2014, was the convener of the top level group of parliamentarians for multilateral nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation. He co-founded the European Leadership Network and has been the chair of its board of trustees and directors ever since its inception. And Des also now serves in the House of Lords AI in Weapon Systems Committee. Welcome, Des. Thank you very much, Ethan. Thanks for the invitation to join this interesting conversation. Now, our first question today is really grappling with the basics. In terms of definition, what is existential risk? And I think we'll go to Eva first. So if we talk about existential risk, what we're fundamentally interested in are um, existential threats. And I would define these existential threats as events that are either directly or indirectly could cause the extinction of humanity or just a collapse of society worldwide. 
cannot recover from that. It's irreversible. I guess that's that's what's in the term. And this doesn't just merely mean that, for example, an asteroid could wipe out all intelligent life on Earth, but it could also be about other ways of just losing what we value in human civilization. For example, some researchers have pointed to a form of, say, stable totalitarianism as a potential existential threat, because that would just also mean a huge loss of value. So it's not just about everyone dying. And so these are existential threats, and the term existential risk then also refers to kind of a chance or the probability of such an event occurring. What is also important to me is to make the distinction between existential risks and global catastrophic risks. So global catastrophic risk is often used to refer to a probability of an event that could lead to, say, a widespread disaster, which is also beyond the capability of what national governments and the private sector can do to control it. And so if global catastrophic risks are left unchecked, they could also lead to great suffering, loss of life or sustained damage to all from governments to economies or stability. But they're not as catastrophic or not as existential as these existential threats. But just to visualize that maybe there's a UN report that defines global catastrophic risks at about 10% of human population losing their lives. So this is just a general threshold that it's been giving, and this would amount to about 100 times the deaths that we've seen with the COVID pandemic. So we're also talking about immense suffering and a uh, and huge scale. I've got to say, it's quite impressive to think about it as a matter of scaling like that, because obviously we all knew how dramatic COVID was, but then the thought of it being, you know, what, 100 times that, and then that's just global catastrophic is insane. But um, to continue with the first question, we'll, we'll move over to Arthur now, actually. So... In terms of definition, what is existential risk for you? I really agree with the definition that Eva just put forward. And I think that further to that, I think it's important to perceive existential risk as a spectrum. There is various degrees of harm that could happen as a consequence of natural events like uh, astrological events or man-made events that could you know, cause significant harm. Nuclear weapons is often highlighted as the biggest man-made existential risk. But also I think that bringing forward a, a wide spectrum to the, the comprehension of existential risk is really important because it's very easy for people to be overwhelmed with those themes. You know, we, we, don't, we don't comprehend the full, the full scale of those things, and, and especially the wider public, which is a big player in mitigating those risks and putting forward expectations towards mitigation uh, that the, the parliamentarians or the governments could take into account. And so the, the broader scope we put forward for existential risk, the more we can spark interest. And so that brings me to the idea of, you know, direct and indirect risk, which, you know, brings another layer of nuance to, to this idea of, uh, of existential risk. And furthering this idea, we can look at more concrete cases like, of course, the use of a nuclear weapon would be, or a, a nuclear exchange would be uh, an existential risk. But I think we also need to include in the spectrum of what we consider existential risk, the causes that could lead to a nuclear exchange. And so doing this really allows us as citizens, but also parliamentarians and, and decision makers generally to look at the past, see how existential risks were mitigated or handled or how society adapted to those risks and analyze the historical context that, that have led us to those, you know, almost tipping points. I think we can name a few, uh, especially in the context of uh, nuclear weapons. But if we see existential risk in, in terms of direct and indirect causes and risks, then uh, I think we have this, this idea that uh, maximizes the amount of inputs that we can bring forward in, in solving it. Amazing. Thanks, Arthur. It's always good to think as well about, you know, look to the past and, and think what can be done for the future and all those kinds of things. So look, a lot's been covered already, Des, but 
Anything you'd like to add to Arthur and Eva and the very broad definition, what is existential risk? So, I mean, I, I agree with what both Eva and Arthur have said, but it's important to, to try to summarise this in some way that makes it accessible to people. And anticipating this question, had I been asked first, the first sentence of my response might have been, it depends who you ask, you know, what existential risk is. And my preference really is to go for the simplest of explanations for it, which is emerging now, essentially, in the literature, because the literature is going beyond the conversation about what existential risk is to people like me who are policymakers. And it's much more helpful if we speak a language that is similar to the language that's been spoken by the experts, the technical experts, so that when it comes to the regulation of what leads to these risks, particularly the man-made risks, that we're talking the same language. So my preference is, and these are not the exact words that are used, but to, to just look at the language. An existential risk is one that has the potential to impede our very existence. In other words, to eliminate all of humanity, or at the very least, to kill large swathes of the global population, leaving survivors without sufficient means or opportunity to rebuild society. And by that, I mean to rebuild society back to the current standards of living that we have. When I had responsibility as the Secretary of State for Nuclear Weapons, I was very conscious that if a nuclear war, no matter how limited, had taken place, many of the people who survived may well have wished they hadn't because the quality of life would have been so poor. I mean, that's the first point I want to make. The second point is the manifestation of these risks that we're going to talk about for the next 30 minutes or so are very similar in terms of the effect they have on the population. And as they cascade, you have to appreciate that risks which may start off as catastrophic risks may develop into being existential. You know, there is, as we learn more about even what the limited use of nuclear weapons would cause, the impact that it would have on our atmosphere, the long-term impact, the humanitarian impacts of it, you know, the resulting nuclear winter could be even deadlier than a limited war itself. And the, you know, the Red Cross have published very persuasive research in this regard, I think probably about 10 years ago for the first time, but I think they refreshed it. And they came to the conclusion that there is no country in the world that could survive the use of a nuclear weapon against them that could recover from that. And they said that in their estimation, no country ever would. So, you know, if you have a cascading effect in the ability to be able to feed a substantial part of the population of the world, then potentially killing most of the people on Earth, then you have an existential risk from something that may have started out as a catastrophic risk. Thank you, Des. And I think that's a really important point as well. I think um, we, we mentioned briefly earlier on about, you know, asteroids and is the thing that I think most people, when you think of like an end of the world, you think to dinosaurs, you think of like the flood. These are all the images you have in your head rather than something which could be more like this sort of slow burn when there is the initial impact, but then it's life afterwards isn't recoverable almost. We've spoken a bit about this already, actually, to move on to our next question about determining when a risk is existential rather than a global catastrophic threat, you know, that the question of scaling. But um, one thing I'm interested in is how do we actually assess, uh, what is the process for assessing whether or not something is a global catastrophic threat, an existential risk to humanity, or just something that could be very, very bad, to put it in a simple way? How do we assess these threats? What are some of these threats? What is the framework we operate it in to 
determine whether something is going to be really disastrous in general or, as we said earlier on, existential, Arthur? I was actually um, juggling with this question and, and it's, uh, it's actually a harder question than it looks. You know, I think the, the first thing I'd like to put forward is the idea that, you know, human imagination has pushed society forward and human imagination has been able to, you know, put forward tremendous ideas, positive ideas. And so I think that human imagination should be once in a while brought back to the discussion to imagine and picture, you know, how bad it could get. So I think that's a really like, humane answer that relies on, on the, the, the human cognition to address this question, sort of asking ourselves like, well, how bad could it get? Unfortunately, the how bad could it get nowadays is becoming more and more easier and easier to picture. And so I think that beyond going in terms of, you know, how many people would die or how many people would be impacted or would the current standard of living be drastically lessened? I think that existential risk can potentially, in my, in my opinion, also be used as a humbling, cohesive force for humanity. You know, the, the idea that we are capable of, of tremendous atrocities and tremendous or we're capable of, of causing tremendous pain. And, and the fact that we don't, I think, is something that we need to be reminded of once in a while. So I think um, beyond going into data and, and numbers, I think this is, in my opinion, a, a good way to look at existential risk. And then in terms of threat assessment, there is, you know, perhaps into that uh, a bit later in the discussion, but in terms of what we can do about it, is the idea that governments are running public institutions more and more like like uh, private companies. You know, there is this idea that the um, the money we put in needs to be beneficial or or that you know we 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 impose a capitalist or corporate mindset on public institutions and so i think that it's a shame and, and that's something that should be challenged because public institutions should be funded to provide a intangible public good the the benefits that come out of public investments are generally hard to quantify you know, you can't quantify a good education until that person gets a good, you know, a, a high paying job or, or the reason I'm bringing this forward and, and putting this up is, is also the idea that threat assessment is done by those institutions. And it's important to keep fundings. You know, I'm thinking of there is a, a whole network of prevention of nuclear disasters. And so the, the CTBT is, is one of them. And so keeping fundings for those institutions, there is, you know, a lot of threats arising from cyberspace. And I think funding proper cybersecurity and cybersecurity center is also part of it. And so I think in the term of assessment, that's where I would go. Thanks so much, Yath. I think we can definitely delve into a little bit more of that later in terms of like what can be done and stuff. And, and thank you as well for bringing to attention how this kind of like transactional mindset that governments often do have, this like short-term transactional mindset can then, you know, further down the line impact decision-making like this. I think what we'll do now is we'll move to Des. So you spoke a little bit about this already, but I think especially in regard to this, you know, governments assessing it and this relationship between sort of private sector companies and stuff, it'd be good to hear from you a little bit about this from you, Des, from your perspective, having been a minister in governments before, about assessing threats and how can we assess them in general? So many governments in the modern world have risk assessments. Many of them are published. You can read them on the web. And without going into the detail of the process, I'd be interested to hear what Eva has to say about this since she works in this space. But I think by and large, we have identified the likely causes of a threat to our ability to live and future generations' ability to live in this planet. We've probably identified them and we've identified those that we 
that we call natural ones, such as, well, they're mostly things that happen in space that we have no control over. But I think there is a, a mature realization that thanks to our own activity, and very specifically in nuclear weapons, they were the first really where we created the ability to destroy the likelihood that we could continue to live on this planet if we deployed these weapons to their greatest effect. And, you know, bioengineering and biotechnology and the potential either misuse of it or careless use of it also has led us to the view that the possible negative effects of cloning or gene splicing or gene drives or whatever this technology and a host of other related advancements could be would be catastrophic at the very least and possibly, you know, life-threatening. And now we're waking up to the possibility of generative artificial intelligence that, you know, we could unleash on ourselves technology that we would not fully understand and that we could not control. And we're constantly being reminded of this by the people who developed this. And in fact, recently, many of them who have been responsible for the development of it are saying, at the very least, there needs to be a moratorium until we find some way of regulating this. So I don't think we're short of being able to identify where the problems lie. I think the problem is that with the possible exception of climate change, which is a growing concern, and the manifestations of which are becoming apparent, you know, there's no part of the world that has not suffered in the last couple of years some of the effects of uh, climate change. I mean, the, the weather system where I live has changed markedly. You know, this small island that I live on, that is, you know, England, Wales and, and Scotland, you know, has gone through in the last three or four weeks extremes of, of weather that none of us ever knew. I mean, we could we can have 25 degrees Celsius in the southern part of it and 15 degrees in the northern part in the same week, you know. I mean, it's just... And nobody's ever experienced these sorts of things before, so these changes... But, but at least we have, we have an international framework for climate change even if we're not respecting all of the requirements uh, that are placed on individual countries as well as we should be. And while it's, you know, unlikely to be an existential risk, I mean, it will certainly create havoc and increase the likelihood, perhaps, the use of other uh, systems in a way that could generate an existential threat. Climate change may lead to nuclear war. It may lead to other catastrophes. And God knows what sort of pandemics could be unleashed, you know, with climate change across the world, because we know these pandemics exist. You know, they exist in small in places. And if they ever get out, then the last experience we've had of a pandemic, you know, we'll, be, we'll look back on and think that, that, that it was relatively straightforward. So I think the challenge is in this environment, you know, in order to do justice to the seriousness of these threats, it's just quite simple. Our political leaders need to give them more attention than they have so far. They need to be moved up the priority list much more. And we need to work together. There is no risk in the first 10 of any risk assessment that I have ever read that is not of the category that nobody is safe from them unless everybody in the world is safe from them. I, I was on a select committee that was looking at the way our government was looking at risk. And there was no question that the risk assessment process had a bias against these high impact, low probability risks. And we suggested to the government that perhaps they should reverse that and they, we should look at them all and we should prepare for all risks because actually the resilience we need against these risks, both before 
they may manifest when they manifest in a recovery from them are all pretty much the same. So if we're going to build resilient societies, we need to we need to cover the whole range of risks. Either so, when we're assessing these threats, obviously you're in education right now because you're studying, you know, security studies and stuff like that at the moment in the States. I was just wondering, actually, is there much discussion about assessing these threats and determining these threats at the moment? I'm quite interested, actually, in whether or not, you know, in the academic level right now, these debates we're having here, are these carrying on for you a little bit in your studies? Yes, definitely. I would say that that's definitely a recurring theme, um, especially when you focus on technology. And like, like has been said before, a lot of these existential threats that we face are anthropogenic, so they are man-made. So if we are talking about um, nuclear weapons or advanced biotechnology that can pose significant security risks, then of course we're trying to assess these risks and, and seeing what could happen. And I think just two general things you could say look at if you just like try to see whether something could potentially be an existential threat or not would be just like a global scope saying take COVID, for example. We definitely saw that this disease had a global spread for sure. And we're also looking at some sort of severity of suffering or the consequences or just the loss of life. And I think where COVID already caused immense amount of suffering and loss of life, but there's also research that shows that there are pathogens either naturally occurring or engineered, basically, um, that can cause even more suffering, be more deadly because they have a longer incubation time or just the infection with them might be more deadly. Amazing. Thanks, Eva. I was going to say, it's, it's one of the ones where no one really knows what's coming. I was reading the other day with, well, a bit of a spoiler, there's an article coming out soon from within the Never Network looking exactly at this kind of relationship between AI and, you know, the idea there could be a bioterrorist some, sat somewhere in the middle of, you know, Wisconsin who's creating something deadlier than the plague. And it's like, you know, um, we'll, move, we'll move into our next question now. So the next question is, what can governments do about these threats? And I think we'll start with Des with this one, but I'm actually going to flip this question a little bit as we've spoken a little bit already about what governments can do. I'm interested to know, we know what governments are doing in the risk assessments and so on. What can governments do better to deal with these threats, Des, in your opinion, actually? How could governments better utilise these pre-existing frameworks and cooperate? Like, What could be improved upon from what you can see so far? Well, I mean, I have some experience of how our government did it, although they've changed it recently. I mean, they did have a bias against these high-impact, low-probability risks in our observation in the Select Committee when we studied this. We came to the conclusion that, that they had to not reverse that bias, but they had to make an approach which was holistic. And if rather than looking at these risks from their probable cause to their probable impact, then you can find, I think, levels of resilience that you need to build in a society that at least mitigate the effects of the manifestation of any risk of threat will mitigate before that manifestation the likelihood of it happening. And with these man-made risks, then regulation can mitigate that possibility. And in the biosecurity sphere, we have a global approach to that, which is not perfect, but is substantially effective. And we have to some degree with nuclear weapons and the non-proliferation treaty and with the nuclear itself in the the International Atomic Agency. So we, we have templates for this in the past of how you do this. And, you know, if you want to build resilience for recovery after the manifestation, then to a large degree, it doesn't really matter what caused it. 
these catastrophic impacts are going to all be much the same. And we have to learn. I mean, we are at the moment in the United Kingdom going through a public inquiry into COVID. And, you know, you can tell from the media just by reading the evidence that this inquiry is getting that we are all capable of learning something every day. I mean, the mistakes were manifest. I mean, at the heart of them last week was that the scientists and the technological people, the people who understood the technology of the, you know, of what was needed to deal with this, and the scientists were speaking a different language from the politician. And their evidence suggests that, you know, their respective diaries that are being revealed now, their WhatsApp conversations that are being revealed, is that they were speaking a different language. And, and, and that's a crucially important thing in these spaces where we're dealing with science and technology, that the people who understand this speak the same. And, and that's the experience we had in any event over nuclear weapons. The scientists and the engineers who were responsible for the Manhattan Project and for the development of nuclear weapons, both in the United States and in the Soviet Union, worked together to help governments be ready for arms control when they were politically able to do it. They work together. And, and my hope is that the people who understand artificial intelligence to the extent they do, and not all of the people who work in artificial intelligence understand it. I mean, black boxes are rampant in artificial intelligence. Should, instead of signing letters suggesting that politicians need to do something, they should get together to tell us how we can regulate this technology in a way that keeps it from developing in the way that they feel that it will. I would like to think that as a result of some of the recommendations we made in our committee, our government is beginning to move in that direction. It's beginning to start to think in this way and it's beginning to bring people together to see how these things can be developed. And the second thing that I would say is that if you take a resilience approach to this, then you'll get it much more correct than you will if you try to take it from you know, the technology or whatever. If you take a resilience approach to it, then you're much more likely to get it. And if you take a whole of society approach to it, every country needs to take a whole of society approach in their own country and to find a way of taking a whole of the world approach because we all represent countries that have relatively good resources. There are many people in the world who have no chance of dealing with what they will be exposed to if these threats manifest themselves. And we need accept our responsibility and in particular the countries that have nuclear weapons need to accept the responsibility to the countries that don't have nuclear weapons. Artificial intelligence in its generative stage is in the hands of four large multinational companies. You know they are if anything in the jurisdiction of a small number of countries even if they're not regulated there but they have the responsibilities and these responsibilities are global so we need to find ways of doing this is very difficult but we need to do it. And we need to talk more about it. We need to be much more open. You know, that's actually been quite a useful way of me because I was thinking just then I'm actually going to combine our next two questions and what governments can do. Also with our final question about individuals and, you know, your mention of the whole society, the whole global approach, taking everyone with you, don't wait for the politicians, get working on it now, is actually very emblematic of what Never seeks to seeks to do. You know, do the things that governments can't and have it ready for them when it's time for them to do so. So I think I'm going to move over to Arthur now and, you know, what can governments do about these threats? But equally, what can be done on the individual level and how can we even have hope when there might be loads of scientists working saying things need to be done, governments aren't listening. How can we have hope? What can governments do? What can individuals do? What what approach is needed? I think it's not far-fetched to to say that, and definitely not a, a misrepresentation, to make the generalisation that 
we have as humans this ingrained desire to live, you know, according to the three freedoms of human security. So freedom from fear, freedom from want, and freedom to live in dignity. Once society understands that, society can start demanding the application of, of the human security concept. And perhaps I should explain a bit about that. So it's the idea that security cannot and should not be defined by merely the absence of conflict. Security is something much more alive that encompasses social, political, economic, health, ecological, food, and personal security into one cohesive approach. And so attaining this realization as a society and starting to demand that of your parliamentarians and, and your governments, I think, is the first step, sort of the bottom-up approach. And then to the other side, you know, having parliamentarians and, and government uh, decision makers educated on the, the framework of human security is also really important. So I think that this is the first half of what can government do better to assess existential risk is, is to establish this. And then on the international side, the idea of common security and the primacy of multilateral discussions, I think, should be brought back. You know, we, we have right now this argument and this is something you said that I really relate to is the idea that if your neighbor is not secure, you cannot be secure. And, and right now we are and we have been for some time in a global paradigm that pushes tensions and, you know, in regards to the use of biotechnology, the use of chemical technology, the use of nuclear technology really increases the probability of the use of one of those horrible weapon. If you limit tensions, you limit the potential uses of those technologies. So I think that's, that's a strong point I'd like to make and really insisting on the importance of, of having a, a top-down approach and a bottom-up approach at the same time. Amazing. Thanks so much, Arthur. Des, anything you want to add for the very final question about what can be done and how can individuals have hope when threads are so large? I mean, I did say earlier that, you know, our political leaders need to pay much more attention to this. Hopefully they will now that the effects of climate change are becoming more apparent and they are impacting not just the southern hemisphere or the poorest countries in the world, but they're beginning to impact the countries where the resources lie and where the decision making can be can be made and funded and of course none of us avoided or are avoiding the impact of covid because it's continuing for many people and it's changed our way of life and it changed the way in which we work the process of reflecting on that should make us aware you know of these responsibilities so hopefully they will pay more attention to it but the people who live in the world who do not choose the political career have an obligation to ensure they damn well do. People must assume the agency of securing the future generations of their own families, you know, taking the responsibility that they can and exercising it. And in democracies where they can vote, they need to make the impact of their vote very powerful. I'll finish with this. I remember when Extinction Rebellion took over the streets of the centre of London for a period of time. So as you can imagine, my office was on a street in Westminster, just across from the Houses of Parliament, what was a, a space in which they were operating. And I went out one afternoon to talk to them, and I expected, I had a sort of figure a frame in my head of who I would meet and what sort of people they would be. And I was astonished to find, first of all, lots of women, but lots of middle-aged women. And in my conversations with them, I said to them, what brings you here? And they said, our granddaughters, our children, 
We came here because they were young and were in education and had to be at school or university or whatever, but we said, you need to go and represent them. You know, so I think we, you know, we, we need somehow in the political sphere or in the, the public policy sphere to get the message across to people that they have agency in this and they need to exercise this agency. They need to accept the responsibilities for future generations of humanity, not just their own families, but their own families first. That's why I'm so pleased that the ELN have created this global network of young people. You're the people who are most likely to be living in the worst circumstances of the manifestation of one of these threats, much more likely than me, I think. So you need to apply the agency you already have. We need to get cracking. <laughs> Eva, we'll turn to you now. And I think what we'll do is, because I keep addressing these two in the same mindset anyway, what can governments do about these threats? But equally, what can be done? How can individuals have hope? How do we deal with the enormity of it? Des made some good points. Arthur's made some good points. Interested to hear your thoughts too. To me, the people within government are also just people. So if you say, what can individuals do? There's also individuals working in government to implement these measures we're talking about, we're demanding. But there's also great responsibility for the people outside government to maybe push for solutions that maybe aren't always conceivable when you're operating within a more tight structure and kind of push the limits of what's possible. Also on that, I think what is important to know is that some of the threats we've been speaking about, especially those that have emerged a bit more recently, so not nuclear weapons, these are, there's a larger responsibility of the private sector for these risks. So say AI, for example, as Des has touched upon, there's the advanced artificial intelligence today is mainly developed by a few companies that pose the, the largest chunks of the global risks when it comes to AI. And similarly for a synthetic biology that poses a lot of risks for infectious diseases, a lot of that is very democratized in a sense. So not democratized within governments, but that just the access and the thresholds to acceding to these technologies is very low which I think also means that we need to rethink some of the models we have had previously for, say, governing nuclear weapons and trying to reduce nuclear risks and achieve nuclear disarmament globally. Amazing. Thank you, Eva. Eva mentioned a little bit about preliminary work on regulation just then. I wondered, Arthur, for instance, have you got any comments to make on regulation on you know these, these newer existential risks? Well, I think without wanting to get into details and, and, you know, the specific of what company is doing what or what government is doing what, I think it's fair to put forward the idea that governments and parliaments should put checks and balances on private companies. We've addressed a bit the role of private companies in this, but I think it's important to realize that we can't move forward as humanity, you know, for as long as weapon salesmen profit from war, as long as, you know, the medical corporations, you know, benefit from a health crisis, uh, so long as the food producer benefit from food scarcity. I think that there is a really big misalignment of priorities and, and this misalignment tips towards profit. And I think that's something that is increasingly worrying to look at and, and increasingly more and more complicated to speak about. And AI is in the same bag. I think we're, we're rushing forward with the creation of a, a technology we don't understand, same with algorithms. So we, we're rushing forward with technologies that we do not comprehend because they create profit without realizing that they might cause real issues in the years to come. Des, any closing comments for us as we wind down today's discussion? I mean, I think I've already said this. I'm just glad to see young people involved in these uh, conversations. The future will depend a lot on having people who will be in leadership roles who 
who understand these issues. And much more importantly, it will depend on people in leadership roles who know each other in advance of becoming people in leadership roles and therefore have the trust and confidence in each other to work across these difficult divides that exist in the politics of this world and the common interest of the people who live on this planet. You know, we all have a, actually an overwhelming responsibility to future generations. <laughs> and, and as I said earlier, and everybody else who's on this call is much nearer future generations than I am. So I think there is an obligation, and there's an obligation on us to prepare for that leadership, not just to demand of the current leaders, who seem incapable of delivering it. But let's hope they at least deliver enough of it to get us there. So thanks very much, all of you, for devoting parts of your life to this important issue. Amazing. Thanks so much, Des. And exactly, once again, get into the very core of what we're trying to do here by getting all these people from around the world together and knowing each other and knowing each other's ideas beforehand. Thank you, Des. Eva, any closing comments for us before we, we finish today's panel discussion? Yeah, maybe I'll address the hope part. That's a good way to finish. <laughs> I think that the threats are, of course, huge. They're extremely large and so large that maybe sometimes even human brains cannot fully comprehend what's at stake. But I think we're still not inevitably doomed. So I think that some recent events have also shown us that positive change is possible. Say, for example, global efforts to protect the ozone layer or just how quickly vaccines were developed during the COVID-19 pandemic. I think these examples just kind of remind me of what we can achieve together if we really work together globally. And I just hope that we can build on on such examples and on these efforts to make even more progress and keep us safe. Amazing, Nick. Thanks very much, Eva. Build on what we've done before, make it even better. <laughs> Over to you, Arthur. Any final statements as we wind down today? I think we need to re-establish the importance of conversation in, in our society because that's something that we're losing really fast and the way the news works and the way social media works are not helping this but we have to dare going on on podcast and and you know writing articles and we have to dare being wrong that's also something that we don't want to do anymore we hold on to our opinions and reject any suggestion that that may change them you know so i think I think it's important to engage yourself, to discuss. And, you know, politics is the art of what goes where to who and when. So it's everything. And so a conversation at the dinner table is politics. A conversation, you know, with your friends in the park, that's politics too. I think we need to reinterest ourselves in what's going on around the world. We need to dare putting our words out there and dare putting our ideas out there and dare having them challenged. And I think that the beauty of human interactions We'll take care of the rest and solutions will arise. We just need to give ourselves the chance of being wrong and the chance of expressing those ideas. I'd like to thank Eva, Arthur and Des for joining us and contributing to today's discussion. We're now going to move over to Jane and have a look at an example from history where humanity has been in a very precipice of destruction, but nonetheless managed to step back from the brink. Over to you, Jane. So now we're going to turn back the clock and in this episode we are joined by Marion Mesmer, Senior Research Fellow on International Security at Chatham House. Marion, you're going to speak to us today about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Could you give us a very short introduction into what happened 
Yeah, of course. The Cuban Missile Crisis was this big turning moment in the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union. It took place not long after Kennedy had become president. While there are lots of different reasons as to why the crisis started, for me, one of the key moments is that Khrushchev essentially underestimated what kind of a president Kennedy was going to be. They had interacted a few times already over the issue of Berlin. And one of the things that had stood out to Khrushchev, who was quite an experienced statesman at the time, was that he thought that Kennedy was young, inexperienced, and could easily be manipulated. So one of the things that really bothered the Soviet Union at the time was that the United States had nuclear missiles stationed in Turkey, which was very close to Soviet territory. And they were essentially really worried that they couldn't reach the United States as easily with uh, nuclear missiles as the US could reach them. So uh, Khrushchev was looking for a solution to that problem. And one of the things that seemed obvious was to station nuclear missiles on Cuba because it was close to US territory and because the Cuban government at the time had been trying to get closer to the Soviet Union anyway and was really worried about the potential of US intervention. So Khrushchev assumed that the US maybe wouldn't notice at first because you have to remember this was at a time when there were very different uh, reconnaissance technologies, so it was much harder for states to know what others were up to. And the other aspect was that he thought, even if the US noticed, perhaps they wouldn't mind as much because of the US missiles in Turkey. So over the period, a few weeks and months, the Soviet Union sent a range of different military equipment to Cuba, including nuclear missiles. And when the US discovered through overflights with a spy plane that there was this buildup, they essentially saw that some of the missile bases were being built and military equipment was being moved around. That was essentially the start of the crisis because they realized that something was afoot and they weren't sure what it meant. So they were really concerned that it actually was maybe a precursor to a Soviet invasion or a Soviet attack or something like that. So that was the origin of the crisis. So what did they do in response? They debated a few different options. What I think is really interesting about the Cuban Missile Crisis is that we can see a few points in the crisis where things could have gone very differently. So there were a few of Kennedy's advisors that were advocating for military intervention. So they essentially said the best way to resolve this was for the US to invade Cuba and to capture whatever the Soviet Union was installing there. And had they done so, that could have very easily led to a nuclear escalation. In the end, Kennedy took a sort of slower, more diplomatic route. He and Khrushchev ended up writing several letters to each other over the course of the crisis, where they laid out different positions. And they ended up being able to come to a negotiated agreement, which included the withdrawal of the uh, US missiles in Turkey. And then, of course, the withdrawal of the Soviet missiles in Cuba. But I think what really changed things in the relationship between the two was that the two leaders understood each other's resolve a lot better. So Khrushchev came to realize that Kennedy actually wasn't bluffing or that it wasn't going to be easy to manipulate him. While at the same time, Kennedy learned something really important about how the Soviet Union saw its own security. And as a result of that, they were able to then resolve that crisis without it escalating. And they learned this about each other from letters and from intermediaries. That's right, yeah. Amazing. So it's one of those really interesting moments in diplomacy because you have people engaging not quite directly. Mm -hmm. So they didn't 
meet face to face during the crisis. I don't even think they spoke on the phone. There were, as you mentioned, certain intermediaries that spoke pretty regularly. So um, so John F. Kennedy's brother, Robert, who was also in his cabinet, spoke with the Soviet ambassador to Washington, D.C. a few times. And between the sort of official back channel and the letters that they wrote to each other, they were able to lay out the different positions. There was also a really interesting aspect of public diplomacy, where both Khrushchev and Kennedy gave a few radio addresses that were to address their populations, because at some point the crisis also became public knowledge. So there were certain things that they had to say. But of course, those addresses were scrutinized really closely by the respective governments as well. And they kind of looked for hidden messages or signals that they were trying to send to each other. So I think that's really interesting also because the information environment was so different. So they had to use those kind of means, whereas today you would imagine that maybe a phone call or video conferencing or something much quicker, much more direct than transatlantic letters that are mailed back and forth would be used to resolve such a crisis. But on the other hand, they also didn't have to deal with some of the challenges that would come up in today's environment, right? There was no social media. There wasn't such a huge amount of external noise that you would expect if something similar was to happen today. You can only imagine what Elon Musk might be saying. Exactly, yeah. What has changed as a result of this in terms of how nuclear weapons are managed? So one of the things that came out quite clearly from that crisis was that a much more reliable communication channel between the US and the Soviet Union was needed, in part because when the crisis first became apparent to leaders in the US, they weren't quite sure who to contact in the Soviet Union. And so there was a real concern about, you know, the famous question of who do you call if something goes wrong? And that then eventually led to the establishment of hotlines between the two Cold War adversaries. And uh, it also taught us quite a lot about signaling and communication in a crisis. Mm. So these are all things that are still really huge topics in nuclear policy. And governments continuously try to adjust the signals they send, the messaging they do in order to get it just right, because it's very easy to think that your messaging is clear, but actually, you know, the state whom you're intending to receive your message gets it wrong. And then all of a sudden, you might end up in a crisis due to misunderstanding. So being clear and avoiding that misunderstanding is essentially the goal that we're all still trying to reach. Absolutely. That seems very relevant today. Thank you very much, Marianne Mesmer. Thank you. For more insight into this crucial period where the Russia-US standoff puts the whole world at risk, I caught up with Alexei Gromyko, director of the Institute of Europe at the Russian Academy of Sciences and a member of the European Leadership Network. We spoke on the sidelines of a conference, so you may detect some hotel noises in the background, including some cheesy jazz. Alexei, can you tell us about the significance of the Cuban missile crisis when we're trying to understand how nuclear war has been avoided for so long? At that time, we did not have uh, the concept of uh, mutual, mutually assured destruction. We did not have uh, what uh, now for more than 30 years we call strategic stability. And we did not have a serious uh, agreement either between the Soviet Union and the United States so on the multilateral basis on the arms control. So there was nothing to some extent to establish or rather 
and that's why it was so dangerous. So what was it that led the two leaders to pull back from the brink? It was not just the Khrushchev and Kennedy, but hundreds of other people were involved in yes. different backs of negotiations, uh, public and behind closed doors, military people, intelligence people, diplomats, etc., etc. The main challenge was uh, how to find uh, a way out so that both sides uh, can save their face. Yes. And uh, uh, it was clear that uh, it should be a compromise. At the same time, the situation was complicated by the fact that not uh, everything was to be decided in Washington and Moscow. A lot depended on what was going on on the ground because uh, military on both sides at that time were much more free and not so much constrained as currently to take a decision to launch missiles. At that time, people living on the planet, in fact, uh, were not aware of the fact, most of them, how close their lives now was endangered. Only many years afterwards, decades, more or less, you know, the whole picture was clarified. And this picture has not been just becoming brighter, but has been becoming darker because the more we know, the more we understand yeah. how dangerous that conflict was. Alexei Gromyko, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been great to hear from Alexei and Marion about that time when the world really was at risk and hardly anyone fully realised. To make sense of all of this, I'm going to go back to Idan to debrief and draw out the lessons from our various conversations today. What stood out for you? Thanks, Jane. Yeah, well, obviously, Arthur, Eva and Des all made some really, really interesting points. A lot of brain food to feast on now. And what really stood out for me, I think, was Eva's comments about the scaling of existential risk compared to other threats to humanity, other global catastrophic threats. Because I think a lot of the time it feels so abstract, doesn't it? You know, these topics of the end of humanity. I think when she said in the discussion about how, you know, like, imagine the death toll from COVID and times by 100 and then you've got a global catastrophic threat then times that again by whatever number she said and you get to an existential risk. It's just kind of a good way of like looking back to a really recent relatable experience and just thinking, imagine if that terrible thing was so much worse. That very much helped me get my head around it. I think what Arthur said about the human security center that you need to do when you're thinking about existential risk was also really helpful because it's not just numbers on a chart. It's not just like, you know, a bomb went off somewhere. It's thinking about what does that bomb then have an impact on some other side of the world. You know, it's really just sort of thinking about the real life experience and of people who'd suffer these hypothetical events. And he also said something that I think tied nicely into what Des was saying later on. So Arthur mentioned how a lot of the time we struggle to think about these long-term existential risks because we've got such a transactional mindset. We just think about kind of like, what can we spend money on now to deal with something now and get an immediate return? And I think Des talking about this more holistic assessment to dealing with risk in general is quite a good way of bringing that in almost. It's like, don't just think about the short-term issues. Think more holistically, like, what could happen if we don't deal with this in the long term and treat everything on its own basis? And I've got to finish with Des's rallying cry for that, you know, whole society approach at the end. It was really, really good to hear. Like, don't wait for the politicians, do it yourself. And I, I thought that was a really good call to action. But yeah, great discussion. I agree with that. Good nudge to get on and do it. 
And I think something that has stood out to me is the fundamental common interest and the need to cooperate from all of this. You know, there was a recent survey by the Stimson Centre of people in the G7 countries and the BRICS on international cooperation. And they're all quite gloomy about international cooperation. But the poll does include this brilliant question about whether people would save their worst enemy from an alien invasion. The question's phrased so that it does note that that's an imaginary (laughs) scenario, which kind of made me laugh. And guess what? Most people would, which is a relief. But in reality, we are facing these kind of collective threats and they don't necessarily seem to be galvanising that kind of action. One of the things that really stood out for me from my conversation with Marion about the Cuban Missile Crisis was about that overarching importance of communication and understanding not with the people that you agree with, but with your adversaries, because it is with your adversaries that miscommunication and misunderstanding is the most dangerous. So I think that is going to be a theme we'll probably return to when we delve into our next topic. Once again as well, you know, I think Arthur finished with that thing that, you know, a chat in the park with your friend is politics. Keep the discourse going. (laughs) So yes, on that topic of conversation and communicating, for our next episode, we'll be covering all things nuclear and we're going to try and aim to get an understanding of how we can reduce the risks of nuclear war. So make sure you subscribe. You can find us wherever you listen to your regular podcasts. And remember, it's all okay, Duma.